as you find your seats, if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3, we're going to be looking at the first 12 verses today of Ephesians 3. But will you turn your hearts again toward Jesus and will you pray with me please as we begin? Father, I thank you for the reminder this morning that who we are and what we do here this morning is not for us. Yes, we receive great blessing, but it's for you. Not unto us, but to your name be the glory. Father, we pray that you truly would break our hearts this morning again with the things that break your heart. Oh, Father God, that longing inside of me of of seeing us continually wrestling with your love and your calling in our lives and, and that Orangewood's heart would truly continually be lanced with the things that break your heart. And so, Father, would you give us eyes to see? Would you open the eyes of our hearts and so that we could see Jesus, uh, who is the wisdom of God, who gives us the ability by Your grace and faith to untangle the stories of our own lives and to be a part of what You are doing. So we can cry out and say, give us eyes to see and and give us arms to, to reach and hands to touch and hearts that beat for You. Father, give us feet that are bold and that, that walk powerfully in the Gospel and faithfully and obediently. God, come with Your Spirit and, and, and do what You have to do to this body so that we can leave here more in love with You, more in love with one another, and more on mission and under submission to Christ Jesus. Father, only You could do all of that. Only you can use a broken, trembling, fearful, performance-based sinner like me to accomplish that. So would you come and would you powerfully move, we pray in Christ's name, amen. This morning, we're going to look at the mysterious wisdom of God. And I'm already nervous. Because I know in my heart of hearts, no matter how well in the flesh I could preach this to you, the mystery of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, what God has done for us is going to be greater. Paul talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. Having the joy of preaching the unsearchable riches riches of Christ. Think about that for a minute. Unsearchable riches. We have the privilege of preaching that. You know how much joy it is to stand up before you and tell you about what Jesus has done? And you know what a challenge it is to preach unsearchable? You know that when you start, you're going to fail. Because you are going to leave here not knowing Him enough. Not loving Him enough. But He's going to love you enough. He's going to set you free. But today we're going to look at this word wisdom, the wisdom of God and what God's wisdom has done for us individually, corporately, and now what He calls us to do as a church to proclaim this wisdom. And let me start off with a bit of a definition. We're looking at wisdom here as having the ability to solve difficult problems. 
having the ability, not just the intellect, sometimes people are very, very smart, they may have a great SAT score, a great IQ, but they may not be wise. And there is a difference between worldly wisdom and a godly wisdom, more on that. But this wisdom we're going to be looking at from God is a wisdom to solve difficult issues. It's the wisdom to be able to put together the puzzle of life. It's the wisdom to be able to untangle your mess, our mess, through the work of God. How do you like puzzles? I hate them. Two words, boring. I don't like them. I mean, they're too much. It's too, listen, if I'm going to do a puzzle, maybe I'll stay long enough to do the outside because on the outside, all the uh, one end are going to be straight, right? Everything else is going to be a mess. And so some reason, our youngest, Allie, thought it would be a great idea to pull out a puzzle of a thousand pieces, dump it all over the kitchen table for a family activity. And I look at it and say, oh man, that's an awesome family activity. i got things to do. I will talk to you later. <laughs> Enjoy it. And I'm kind of watching the puzzle take shape. I'm interested in it. It's a puzzle of the Finger Lake region in upstate New York. I love it. But I'm not going to work on it. Because maybe I just don't have the patience. Maybe I don't have the wisdom. The Bible tells us a story of two women. And these two women are engaged in man's oldest work. Oldest profession. You know what that is? These two women were prostitutes. And these two prostitutes, they lived in the same house. They lived in the same house and they both had children at about the same time. And one night, tragedy hit. One night, one of the moms wakes up and she realizes, heaven forbid, oh, the pain, the agony, she suffocated her own child. The child was dead. And then, unbelievably, she does the unbelievable. She gets out of bed with her dead child. She walks to another room where another young mother lay asleep with her living child. And she swapped babies. Taking the living one. Leaving the lifeless one at the breast of the other mother. So she too wakes up in horror and panic, like only a mom could, thinking that she too has lost a child. And through the glaze of her tears and the blurriness of life, she looks into the lifeless child and she realizes it's not mine. And unbelievably, a dispute breaks out between two women over a child. And you got to understand that this child was an inheritance to them. This child would probably secure a future for them. They were looking to this child as so much. And they couldn't 
come to an agreement of whose child it was. And so at the time, they consulted the wisest of all the wise men. At the time that they lived, he happened to be a king. His name happened to be Solomon. And the two women came before the king and his court. And he hears their story. And he says something that's pretty unbelievable. He says, bring me a sword. And so a sword is ushered into the royal court. It's taken out. And he says, divide that baby in two, giving one half to one of the grieving mothers and the other half to the other grieving mother. And the false mother thought that was a good idea because in her sinfulness and in her pain and in her selfishness and her brokenness, she said, why should I not have a child and why should someone else? have the privilege of having a child. Yes, King Solomon, be wise. Slice the baby in two. But the real mom, the true mom, a true mother, could not dare to watch her child be killed. And so she said, no. Don't, don't, don't do it. Give the child to her. Solomon takes the sword and puts it back and says, okay, give the child to the real mother. Give the child to the one who was not willing to let the baby die. And the world was in awe of his wisdom, of how he was able to solve this problem. And the story of his wisdom grew. 1 Kings 38, 28, and 1 Kings 3, I'm sorry, 1 Kings 3, verse 28, and it's in that chapter where you'll hear this story being told. And it says this, and all of Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. They stood in awe of a king who would pursue after justice in God's own heart. As a matter of fact, his fame spread so much that in chapter 4, 1 Kings, verse 34, it says this about this king. In all peoples, not just his own people, and people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And from the kings of the earth, not just the common people, but even kings themselves who heard of his wisdom. The Bible tells us of another queen by a queen of Sheba, queen of Sheba, who would come and test Solomon and his wisdom and say, wow, the stories I heard about you, they're pale in comparison to the real wisdom that you have. But unbelievably, the one who the Bible will say before Jesus was the wisest one who ever lived did not even have the own wisdom to live his life free of entanglements. Couldn't even live his own life. Not letting life entangle and drag him down with his lustful, materialistic heart. In the Gospels, we're told of a story, and it's in Matthew and Luke, and it clearly says that the Pharisees, the religious leaders at the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, they're asking for a sign. Hey, show us, show us a sign that you are the Messiah. And by the way, his whole life was a sign the way He loved and the way He healed and the way He rescued. Are you kidding me? What more of a freak show do you want? Surrender your life to Jesus. And yet they wanted to have a freak show. And show us a sign, Jesus. 
And he said, well, really, I'm not going to give a sign. The sign of Jonah is coming. Sign of being in the grave for three days. But he says, there is one in your midst. There is one standing in your midst whose wisdom is greater than Solomon's. And Solomon had such incredible wisdom, he could build this glorious temple for God. Solomon had all these wisdoms and all these proverbs, and he was known, he's world-renowned for his wisdom. And here, this Nazarene carpenter, this uneducated man says, I have greater wisdom. Why? Because Jesus, when He speaks, speaks the true wisdom of God because He is the true Son of God. And it's this wisdom that Jesus has that's greater than any worldly wisdom because Jesus is, Scripture says, the wisdom of God incarnate. And it's this wisdom of God that manifests itself fully in the deity of Jesus. And are you ready for this mystery of all mysteries, church? It's this wisdom of God that God's Holy Spirit gives to us and that we now are stewards of this wisdom to proclaim the manifold wisdom of God to a nation and a world that desperately needs to hear it. A nation and a world that's dying in their own foolishness. The wisdom of God is now given to us. We're going to look at three things here this morning. The wisdom of God seen in Christ, this mysterious riches in Christ, that He will save sinners like us. The wisdom of God seen in the body, making us one. And in conclusion, and lastly, the wisdom of God in the church, that He wants to use us, the church, the body, you and me, as His primary vehicle, His prism taking the light of God and refracting the beautiful, manifold beauty of God's wisdom to this world. That is our call. Let us look together at Ephesians 3, verses 1-12, through 12, mindful that we are about to read and hear God's holy, inerrant Word. In the original, never without any, without, without any uh, errors, and will never lead us astray. Ephesians 3, verse 1-12. Paul writes, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Remember, those of you who have been journeying with us through Ephesians know that the ultimate mystery that Paul is writing about is the mystery that we see revealed in chapter 1, uh, verses 16 and 17, I believe, that says that He in Christ Jesus, that God in Christ, is making all things one, unifying all things in heaven and earth in Christ Jesus. That Jesus really is the Savior of the world. He really is the hope in the world. And Jesus is uniting all things in heaven and earth in Christ. This incredible mystery. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of man in other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles, those that were not Jewish by descent, are fellow heirs. Members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, this good news, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. 
To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, I love this, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I know the joy of that grace given to me to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, so that through you and me, so that through Orangewood, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, the the multicolored, multivariated, the incredible wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's again pray. Father, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to You, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The first thing we need to see is this. It's the wisdom of God. You want to follow along? It's in your bulletin. There's an outline there. The wisdom of God in the Gospel seen through the mysterious riches of Christ. It's more Memorial Day weekend. For those of you, Paul Tome back here, World War II veteran, thank you for serving. For all of you who uh, have served our great nation, thank you very much. But what if this Memorial Day weekend, what if President Barack Obama made a declaration and he declared this Memorial Day weekend that we will be a loving nation, that we will be the most loving nation that ever existed in history on the face of the earth, and that he was going to be the most loving president ever. I would hope that we would all say, yes, this sounds great. We want to be a loving nation. We want to have a loving president. And what if his plan includes saying, now, this is what we're going to do. Love is now going to open up every prison cell and let all of our criminals go free. It's the most loving thing to do. What if being a loving president led him to say that he was going to go and do away with all the laws that might lead one to prison. If they broke them, that wouldn't be very loving, separating them from their family. So he was going to take away any law that led to prison if it was broken. What if being the most loving president meant that he was going to get rid of all the judges? Making a declaration saying, because who is man to judge what is right and wrong? How can we tell? Why don't we just lovingly tell to our neighbor and tell to one another, do what feels right to you. In the name of love. Now this ridiculous story, if you follow it at all, in the name of love will turn to anarchy in nanoseconds. How could this truly be love? There's no wisdom And this kind of love. This kind of love doesn't solve the world's problems, does it? 
I mean, is it really the most loving thing to do to say, let's just open up all the prison doors? Is it truly the most loving thing to do saying, let's just get rid of the law? Is it truly the most loving thing we could do to say to the judges, oh, forget it, we don't need you anymore, we're going to live the way we feel? Is that really the most loving thing we could do? And anybody who has gray matter that's working this morning will say, no, that cannot be right. That kind of love will only create more problems. If that were the reality, the U.S. of A. that we know and love this Memorial Day weekend would forever change. And the U.S.A., the way we know it, would forever cease to exist. Well, I want to make a point here, and it's this. The greatest problem that ever faced God, and I don't use hyperbole for this, this is true. The greatest problem that ever faced God And the greatest problem that faces you and me is sin. It's the fact that He is holy and He is just. And being a holy God, His righteousness burns against sinfulness. Being a holy and just God, there is a hell for those who fail to embrace Him and His Son as Savior. As a holy and just God. And yet, He's also a merciful and loving God. And it's oftentimes that you and me hear from our non-Christian friends, how in the world can God be loving? How in the world could God be merciful? And all this bad stuff happens. How in the world can God be a loving God, a merciful God? And how could there be a place called hell? How could God be wrathful? And that is a problem that has plagued many. And really what they're asking of God is to act like that story that says, I'm going to only be loving. I will cease justice. I will cease uh, the law. I will cease anything else. What will happen? Anarchy. The country would change the way we know it. Well, the wisdom of God in the gospel seen through the mysterious riches of Christ is this. It is reconciling the attributes of God. Okay, theological sentence that may be lost in translation. What am I trying to say here? What has God's Spirit put on my heart? It's this. It's the amazing riches of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That, listen, that this greatest problem was so great that the angels, the, the angelic beings, it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, also in here, Right here in chapter 3, it talks about the heavenly uh, hosts and principles looking into this. How is God going to solve the problem of your sin and my sin and maintain His holiness? How is God going to solve the problem of our ruined nature and maintain His justice? How is God going to do all of this in rescuing me and you and bringing us to Himself Without changing. Because God it cannot change. If God starts to change, even for a moment, He ceases being God. How does He do it? How does He unite sinful humanity and the holiness of God? And the mystery of all mysteries is He does it through the riches of His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's look a little bit more. What is God? Well, according to uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, that which we hold to is a doctrine that we stand on. 
uh, we would say, what is God? Anybody have it going through your ears yet? I hope. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. So I learned them. I sang them. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Okay. Thank you. Um, Simon, how'd I do? Um, Jeff, you're lousy. (laughs) You tell me the truth. In that statement, it certainly doesn't tell us everything about God. No one statement can tell us everything about God. It's a good statement. But here's what it says about God. God is a spirit. He's infinite. He's eternal. And you know what? He's unchangeable. It's called immutable. In his being is wisdom. Wisdom. True wisdom of God. And it took the wisdom of God to unite you and me, sinners, to a holy God. It took His infinite wisdom to devise a plan before time began that He would send the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, to become flesh and to come and rescue us. It took the wisdom of God to solve the problem of humanity that was dumped before Him like a broken puzzle with no box to look at. It took the wisdom of God to take sinners like you and me and make us holy and blameless in His sight through Christ's blood and righteousness. It took the wisdom of God to take those who were dead in their trespasses and sins and made alive in Christ. It took the wisdom of God to show us who we are in Christ Jesus, joint heirs with Him, given all the riches that Christ deserves are given to us. It took the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of men. We could never do it. We could never build a stairway to heaven. We can never make ourselves right. We can never even start to turn ourselves toward God because of our sinful condition. It took the wisdom of God to unite His image back with the image bearer. It took God's wisdom. Only God could solve the puzzle. And it was such an incredible puzzle that says that angels longed to look at it. They couldn't figure it out. It's so beautiful. The the angels are like, especially in 1 Peter 1, they're like, They long to look into the salvation. How is God going to do this? I mean, humanity is so messed up. How is He going to do it? It took His wisdom. It took His power. It took His power. And here's how He did it. You ready for this? It took His emptying out of His power. It took His power in His Son who would become flesh. Who would empty Himself of all but love. Who would become a servant with a towel and a basin of water. It took power to be that servant. It took power to come and to rescue all that was lost and lift the lowliest, the most lost, the most radical, the most sinful up into beauty with the Father. It took the power of God to change you and me from dead to life. The power of God alone. That's the mystery. That's the wisdom of God. The power of God to make us alive in Christ. But what about God's holiness? How can God stay holy? How can God stay holy and forgive sins? And most people don't wrestle with this, but we have to in the attributes of God. How does God remain a holy being without sin, too pure to even look at it, and yet forgive sins? How does He do it? Because most of the world wants a God who just winks at sin. Who will say, it's not a big deal. No big deal. Do over. We'll forgive you. And I'll just forget about that. Listen, if that were the God of the Bible, that is not a God of holiness and that is not a God of justice. 
That may be a God of love and mercy. But we have a problem here because in His being is holiness that sin is offensive to. So how does God maintain holiness and yet not wink at sin? How does God remain just? How does God remain pursuing His own justice and forgive us? I mean, Scripture says, the soul that sinneth, you ready for this? The soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. For some reason, I memorized that in the King James because I think it has a little bit more power. The soul that sinneth. It will surely die. Do we believe it? The wages of sin is death. It's separation from God. I mean, God who gave us the law, who told us if we break it, we die. If He's going to remain holy and if He's going to remain just, is going to follow through with His Word. Give us justice, God, as giving us hell. Giving us separation. How does God solve his attributes and not change, still being wise, still being powerful, still having holiness, still having justice, goodness. He is a good God. He does lead with mercy and love. How does he maintain his goodness in the midst of his holiness and his justice? How does he maintain truth? Do you see the puzzle? I mean, I, don't, I, I really don't think that many times as Christians we actually even want to look that long at the puzzle. But the puzzle of our broken humanity, the puzzle of our sinfulness was God's greatest problem. And believe it or not, it is your greatest problem and mine. And he had to solve it without doing irreparable harm to his character. And this is how he did it. The lawgiver became the law keeper. The lawgiver became the law keeper. He was born under the law, although he created the law, born of a woman in the fullness of time, coming down to do that which you and I failed to do. Why is that important? Because God has to still be holy, God has to still be just. God has to have that law fulfilled. God can't just say, oh, forget the law. No, He gave us the law to point us to our need for a Savior. God can't do it. So what would God have to do? He had to become one of us in the flesh and fulfill it. So the law giver becomes the law keeper. Is that unbelievable wisdom? Is that unbelievable mystery? Is that unbelievable glory? That is what Jesus has done. Not only that, the good shepherd would become the sacrificial lamb. The high priest would become the sacrifice. Unbelievable, the one that intercedes for us would himself become the crucified Lamb of God. The spotless Lamb taking away our sins. The mystery, the profound riches of Christ. The riches of Christ. That the good shepherd would become the sacrificial Lamb. Amazing. To untangle us, listen, listen, this is the gospel. To untangle us, God would send forth his son in a little manger in Bethlehem. And he would become one of us, fully man and fully God. And to untangle us, he would become one of us. And to untangle us, he would have the cords of our sinful lives wrapped around his neck and cut off his life. To untangle us, he had to be untangled in us, in our sin. 
so that we could become the righteousness of God. The mystery of God seen in the glorious riches of Christ. Orange would drink deeply, never be satisfied with a thimble full of the good news of Jesus Christ. Never let this story not pierce your heart and burn in your ears. This is the most profound mystery that God didn't change That He remained just and holy. And yes, He remained loving and merciful. And justice and mercy, they kissed, as the psalmist said, at the cross. And we have been set free. May the mystery of the riches of Christ compel us to love and to live our lives. May it compel us to do all that we do. All that we are. The mystery of the riches of Christ. Seen in the wisdom of God. Let's look at the next next one. The wisdom of God seen through the mysterious body of Christ. Reconciling former enemies. Religion divides. Relationship unites. What has religion done to unite humanity? It has done nothing. What have wars done to unite humanity? It has done nothing. What has politics done to unite humanity? Ultimately, it has done nothing. They're all an abysmal failure. They all may have times of success and times of peace and times of tranquility and times of prosperity, but in reality, religion only will lead to death. In reality, politics will only lead to death. In reality, we don't solve our problems by dropping bombs. In reality, the only thing that will unite us is Jesus Christ. The only thing. And that's God's plan for the world. Listen, it's what breaks His heart. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. It should break ours. That is His plan. To unite everything in heaven and earth in Christ Jesus. And He is the only hope to be one. He is the only hope that will reconcile enemies. It's the Gospel. It's not the wisdom of the UN. It's not the wisdom of our President. And and pray for their wisdom. And pray that God uses all of them. But church, do you really believe that the living hope that we have for humanity is the good news of Christ? The body of Christ becoming one. And that's, that's why I'm so impassioned about us continually embracing our brothers and sisters, whether they're like on a mission trip right now in Mexico City, many of our elders and Joe Creech is down in Mexico, or, or it's the Job Partnerships Partnership, that uh, that's redundant, uh, in Eatonville that just took place, that so we were worshiping God together Uniting us. Uniting us in Christ. The wisdom of God seen through the mysterious body of Christ. He was saying this. He, he, he said this. He said, now listen, these Gentiles that you hated, these Gentiles that you made fun of, these Gentiles that you thought were the scourge of the earth and pagans, they're, they're your brothers. No, no, no. Not only are they your brothers. Let me make this more clear. They, they're equal. <laughs> All that God gives you, that God gives to them. They're, they're joint heirs. I mean, every riches is theirs. It's true for the Jew. It's true for the Gentile. It's true for the male. It's true for the female. Women, hear that. Paul says very clearly, the oneness in Christ. All the riches are ours, whoever you are, single woman, Married woman, child, in Christ, this riches, this oneness is ours. Lastly, the wisdom of God being made known. God's plan is that His wisdom will be made known through the church. And how do we do that? We are proclaiming reconciliation through our lives. 
How many of you here are Coldplay fans? I love Coldplay. Man, they're awesome. Steven, Yahoo. One of my favorite songs is a line, I think it's from Clocks. It says, am I a part of the cure or am I part of the disease? Am I a part of the cure or am I part of the disease? Church, you've been healed from your disease in Christ. Church, you've been healed in Christ Jesus. And I know that sin is crouching at your door because it's crouching at mine. And I know that I'm prone to wander and I know so are you. But the reality is, is we are not called to be a part of the, cure, or the curse. We are called to proclaim the cure in Christ Jesus. That's why we exist. That is why we are here. And I think the church feels like I do when we see an upside down puzzle all over the tables of our lives. We really look at it and say, it's too broken, it's too complicated, and I must have something better to do with my life than to participate in putting back together the broken pieces of humanity. But church, this is what we are called to do. I want to give you an image to leave with, and it's a prism. Has anybody seen a prism? You know what I'm talking about? With a, not a prison, a prism. P-R-I-S-M. Prism. Anybody seen a prism? Like four of y'all. Raise your hand. I want to see prisms. Okay, there you go. Um, man, get a revival here. Um, a prism takes light that comes into it and refracts it in a way that you see beautiful colors. Manifold, beautiful colors. That is who we are, church. We come together according to the manifold wisdom of God. We come together, we ask the light of the world, Jesus Christ, to shine into our lives and into your gifts and into mine, into your ministry and into mine, into your neighborhood and into mine. And we let, because we come together and we lock arms and we love one another as God has asked us to love one another. And through that, guess what? That refracted love of Christ becomes so beautiful. It's this prism that refracts. And all of a sudden, the manifold colors of God, the manifold wisdom of God, the unbelievable beauty of God is seen in your life. It's seen in my life. It's seen in our life. Listen, I can't overstate it. God wants to show the world that He's beautiful through us. God wants to show the world that He loves through us. God wants us to show the world that He cares about the broken through us. It's it's through letting the light of Christ refract through and on one another to be a kaleidoscope for the world to see Jesus. That's the church. We come together and we're this kaleidoscope of different gifts and abilities and IQs and talents, all equal in Christ, all joint heirs in Christ, all beautiful in Christ. And as the world spins the church around, they see this unbelievable picture, and the picture they see is Jesus. They say, oh. You see, this is a call, church, to holiness. It's a call to justice. Why? Because He is a holy God. Because He is a just God. It's a call to mercy. It's a call to church. Why? Because we are stewards. We are to make known the manifold riches of Christ. We are to make known the manifold wisdom of God. We are to make known God's heart for this world. Last week I talked, I, prayed, I, talked, I preached about 
A church becoming more like Ross Dress for Less. A church that looks more like a place in our community where every tribe, tongue, and nation does come. I saw a taste of it on Thursday night at Job Partnerships. And it tasted so good. And I was so proud of so many of you being that refracted light of Christ, that prism of Christ, and the beauty of the manifold colors and the glory of Christ. Some of you served behind the lines. Some of you served on the front lines. But it was so good to see the church be the church. The reality is, as your pastor, that's where God has me. He has burning in my heart a church that I love, but all I could see is a church that we should become. It's where I live my life. It's lonely at times. It's frustrating at times. Because Jake's is a dreamer. But I can't go down I-4 like I did yesterday and see Orangewood on one side and apartments on the other and say, is that the side that has and is that the side that has not? Are we doing all we can to proclaim the manifold wisdom of God? Or do we look at the broken pieces of our society and say, it's too hard for me. I can spend my time doing other things. We are in such a good position. We have such a wonderful body here. We do. The Spirit of the living God is moving here. I'm just saying, can we fan the flame? Can, can, we, just, can we just really kind of go for it? They just say that we're going to give our lives in a way that we really believe that, that, the, that the wisdom of God has been given to us as a gift and now it's our chance and our time to share it. And we are going to go and love this broken world and bring God's love and mercy and justice everywhere we go. Let's don't look at the puzzle and walk away. Because God has given us everything we need in Christ. We need one another. Come on, lock arms with me. Let's go. What ministry are you involved in? Where are you letting that light refract? Is it just absorbing in your life or are you turning it back to others? Jesus came and said he had a greater wisdom than the wisdom of Solomon. You see, Solomon built a temple. And Jesus came and in the beauty of his upside down kingdom and the absurdity of his absolute message, he says, destroy that temple. I'm going to build a new one in three days. He said, what in the world is this lunatic talking about? He was talking about the temple of his flesh. Nail it to the cross. In three days, it's going to be raised again, and I will build a new temple. And guess who the new temple is? It's you and me. It's the church. It's us. This is the new temple where the Spirit of God dwells. For His glory. For His name. For His purpose. Pierce our heart, O Lord with what pierces your heart. And may the manifold wisdom of God be seen through us. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you so much for all that this church is. A church that truly loves Jesus and strives to honor you. And But God, I know you're calling us. You're calling us to look at the broken puzzle of this world and ask that Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, You are calling this temple, this place where the Spirit of the living God dwells, to engage in justice and holiness and mercy and truth. 
Because that is who you are and because that is who we are in Christ. Father, I pray that the riches of Christ would pierce our hearts afresh. That we would be compelled by the love of Christ. That we would do what we do for your glory because of your love. And a love that has set us free. Father, that we would be a body of Christ truly united Truly uniting this world to You and Your message. Jesus is the only way to unite. And Father, that this church would proclaim in word and deed with each and every member the manifold wisdom of God that will lead to salvation and a puzzle that is the new heavens and new earth and where Jesus is the center and the reigning King of all that we are and all that we do. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.